Right, well, good morning once again. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 11? Now, those of you who have been coming to Calvary for a while know that we've been working our way through this Gospel on Sunday morning. Uh, you remember, of course, how in the first ten chapters, Jesus Christ has been presented to the nation of Israel as her long-awaited Messiah and King. We saw first through John the Baptist's ministry, how he was the Messiah's forerunner, uh, telling people, Messiah is coming, prepare your hearts for the coming of Messiah. Then Jesus shows up and he begins to preach the message of the kingdom, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, presenting himself as the, the king that was foretold would be coming, the Messiah of Israel and so on. But as we see, as we come to chapter 11, the nation began now to reject her Messiah. That rejection started with the rejection of John, as we saw earlier in this chapter. And now they're moving to reject Jesus as Messiah. Of course, that rejection wouldn't be official and final until Palm Sunday when the Lord rode up into Jerusalem, officially presenting himself as Messiah, but was rejected by the leadership, culminating with the statement by Jesus, you shall see me no more until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The next time I come will be with power and glory. But you've missed this opportunity to receive me. If you would have received me, I would have established the kingdom. But now these things are hidden from your eyes. But we see the beginning of that rejection right here in chapter 11. Now, because the nation begins to reject Jesus, he now begins to reject the nation. In fact, starting in verse 25, a very important transition begins to take place. Jesus will be pivoting, if you will in his ministry, away from offering the kingdom to Israel as a nation, and he will now begin to offer it to individuals, both Jews and Gentiles. And his message is going to basically take this form. He's going to be telling the people, whoever receives me as king into your heart to reign over your life, the kingdom will come in you. It won't be coming outwardly, politically. I've been rejected by the leadership. But anybody who receives me as king to reign over their life, I will come into their heart. The kingdom will come inside. This is what the Lord Jesus would go on to call the mystery form of the kingdom. And we'll look at that more as we get to chapter 13. But we see the Lord verbalizing now this transition in verses 25 to 7. Let's read them. At that time, Jesus answered and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent and have revealed them to babes. Even so, Father... For it seemed good in your sight. All things have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Now be careful that you don't fall into a couple of misunderstandings as you read these verses. Number one, that Jesus is expressing pleasure at the coming judgment upon the three Galilean cities that we studied last time, which was... Um, Bethsaida, Chorazin, and Capernaum. They had rejected the Messiah. They weren't the only ones, of course, but he's dealing with them at this point and told them that judgment awaited them. And you might get the impression that Jesus is pleased that judgment is coming upon these cities. That is not true. We'll see that in a moment. But secondly, you might come away with thinking that God had withheld from the wise and prudent, as he says here in these verses, uh, that lived in those cities the light of his truth. Look, 
The heart of the gospel message that Jesus constantly preached was, I have come to seek and to save those who are lost. That is the heart of our God. It was the heart of God expressed in the Old Testament through the prophet Ezekiel. As Ezekiel was sent by God to the nation who had turned its back on God, in fact, was populated by many unbelieving Jews at this time. And because of their immorality and idolatry, God's judgment was about to fall on the nation. So God sends Ezekiel. And through the prophet Ezekiel, we see that you hear the heart of God crying out. He says, turn from your sins. Please turn. For why will you die? I get no pleasure out of the death of the wicked. God is saying, look, I don't delight in bringing judgment. I don't want to judge you in the temporal. I certainly don't want to judge you in the eternal. I'm a merciful God. I'm gracious and long-suffering. God delights in showing mercy. He will bring judgment if he has to, but only as a last resort. Paul the Apostle in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, Paul reminds us that our Savior... Jesus Christ desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So this is the heart of God. God never takes pleasure in judging anyone. He will if He has to because He's a righteous and holy God. And will only allow people to flaunt their sin in His face for so long, giving them a chance to repent. But if they refuse to repent, eventually His judgment will fall. But just because God desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth, listen... That doesn't mean they all will. And that's what eventually happened on Palm Sunday when Jesus rode into Jerusalem and officially presented himself as their Messiah and King and was rejected by the leadership. You remember the scene. He then went out and wept over the city because of their willful unbelief. And he said, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I wanted to gather you under my wings as a mother hen does her chicks, but you were not willing. Now these things are hidden from your eyes, and your enemies will come, surround your city, and destroy it and you. Look at the progression here. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I wanted to gather you, salvation, to gather you to me, to protect you under my wings, like a mother hen does her chicks. But you were what? Not willing. I wanted you were not willing. Therefore, these things are now hidden from your eyes. Remember we said last week, if a person doesn't want God's truth, then they don't deserve God's truth. And eventually he will withdraw the ability to understand that truth. We see this in John chapter 1, verses 11 and 12, where it says that Jesus came to his own, his own people, Israel, and his own did not receive him. Listen. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God to those who believe in his name. But as many as received him. And that's basically what's going to be happening now, guys. The nation, his own, as John described them in his opening of his gospel, Jesus' own people did not receive him. So now the Lord begins to focus on those who would receive him. The people of Israel, especially the leaders, love darkness rather than light. So now Jesus begins to hide the light, the truth, from them and begins to reveal only to those who have open hearts. And of course, we see this happen in chapter 13 where the Lord stops teaching very simply and openly and begins to resort to parables to communicate His truth. And the disciples were, why do you teach the people in parables? Why this departure from the simple teaching that you have been doing before this point? He says, because they hear, but they don't listen. 
They see, but they don't want to perceive. Their hearts have become dull and hard. Therefore, I speak in parables so that only those who have the right heart, an open heart, will understand and receive. You don't want the truth? Then God says you don't deserve the truth. And a judicial blindness is imposed. In verse 27 again we read, All things have been delivered to me by, to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, listen, and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal Him. Now again, don't misunderstand. When we read that the Father is revealed only to those whom the Son chooses, you might be prone to think as some that Jesus only chooses a select few. That, you know, somewhere in eternity past, He picked out a, a few people that was going to receive Him, that He ordained that, and that we don't really have a free will in the matter. It's just going to happen if He's chosen you. Even though it's just a small percentage of people compared to all of humanity, only those people will be saved. Jesus will only reveal Himself or the Father to those select few. And I can see where they might come away with that from verse 27, but verses 28 to 30, well, they guard against such an interpretation. Let me read it to you. Where Jesus said, Come to me who? Those elect those chosen few, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Guys, the Lord Jesus here issues a universal invitation to all who are weary and heavy laden to come to him for rest. In other words, listen. The one to whom he chooses to reveal the Father are those who are willing to come to him and receive him as Savior and Lord. This is not an exclusive club. Anybody can come. And if you come, the Son will reveal to you the Father. But you have to come. This is considered by many to be the greatest invitation in the Bible. First of all, these three verses contain three injunctions. Come to me. Take my yoke, learn from me. So come, take, learn. Three injunctions. There are also three descriptions mentioned here. There is a description of those whom Jesus is invited to come to him, namely all who labor and are heavy laden. There is a description of the one beckoning them to come, namely Jesus, who describes himself as one who is gentle and lowly in heart. And thirdly, there is a description of what those whom Jesus is inviting are to take upon themselves, namely his yoke, which he says is easy, and his burden light. Each injunction is then followed by a corresponding promise. Come to me, the promise is I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, the promise is, and you will find rest for your souls. And they're not the same thing, by the way. We'll talk about that when we get there. All right, listen to the injunctions first of all. Jesus said, first of all, come to me, verse 28. Guys, this is an invitation. All invitations are directed at the free will of man, all right? I mean, if man did not have a free will to either come to Christ or reject Christ, then all the invitations in the Bible would be hypocrisy on God's part. If we were robots and God had to push certain buttons to force some of us to follow Christ, and the rest He just left us on our own to, to go to hell, then invitations would be meaningless because invitations appeal to the free will. Look, Jesus is saying, 
Whoever wants to come to me can come to me for salvation. It's up to you, though. Alright? You can choose to come to me, or you can choose not to come to me. But that's a matter of your own choice. And notice, it's an invitation that's void of anything I need to do before I can come to him for salvation. Aren't you glad Jesus didn't say, you know, uh, you can come to me, but you better clean your life up first. I don't uh, want any dirty people around me. Alright? Get those lives cleaned up. Get to church, you know, and stop doing these things and, and just, you know, clean your life up before you, you're worthy to come to me. He didn't say that. He says, come as you are. I'll receive you just as you are. Now, does he want to leave us just as we are once we receive? No, of course. He doesn't want to clean us up. But you know what? Only he can do that. But he invites us to come just as we are. I'm so thankful salvation was not limited to only those who were strong enough to clean their lives up and live moral lives who you know didn't have any problem with alcohol or drugs or anything like that. I'm so thankful God invites sinners. And if Paul says, of whom I am chief, I can say, well, I must be chiefer than you, Paul. <laughs> but the chiefest or whatever, I don't know what that is. But, you know. And notice that he didn't say, come to me or anybody. Buddha, Confucius, you know. It doesn't matter who you believe in or what you believe, just as long as you believe in something. Well, you know, Jesus didn't feel that way. He was very exclusive. Okay. He said, come to me. All right. And you know what? I don't think he flinched when he said that. He didn't stutter. All right. He said, come to me. If you want salvation and rest. He would go on to say in John 14, verse 6, Look, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father. Nobody gets to heaven except through me. Look, you could disagree with the claims of Christ. You could be upset with the invitation. But make no mistake about it, Jesus was very clear. There was no ambiguity in what he believed and what he taught about salvation. He said, if you want salvation or you want to find true rest, you've got to come to me and nobody else. And listen, coming to Jesus is synonymous with believing in Jesus. That's what the idea is. He said, come to me. What he's saying is, come to me by faith. Put your trust in me. And listen, believing in Jesus is more than just giving mental assent to the facts of who Christ is and what he did. Even the demons believe all the facts we believe about Christ, right? Didn't James say that in Chapter 2, verse 19, even the demons believe and tremble. Demons aren't going to heaven. Why not? I mean, they believe everything we believe about Jesus. In fact, they were there to see all these things happen firsthand. They were there when Gabriel came to Mary and announced that she had been chosen by God to be the mother of the Messiah. They were there when Mary brought forth Jesus and wrapped him in swaddling clothes. They were there to see him grow and develop and launch into his public ministry. They were there, of course, helping him right onto that cross to be crucified. And they were standing by the tomb three days later when the stone began to roll away as the angel picked it up actually and moved it, the Greek says, and Jesus stepped forth from that tomb alive. They were there to, to see all the stuff we believe in by faith. So they believe they are as orthodox in their beliefs as we are. So why aren't they going to heaven? Well, because New Testament saving faith, listen to me, is not just mentally understanding the facts. That's important. Don't get me wrong. It's receiving the King into your heart. Surrendering your life to Him, which then produces the fruit of obedience. Our faith is not a passive faith. It's an active faith. Remember what Jesus said in John 10, verses 27 and 8? 
He said, my sheep hear my voice. That's the invitation. Come to me. And I know them. And they follow me. And I give them eternal life. And they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. The idea is, if you really have saving faith in your heart, it will manifest itself in following Christ. Now, do we always follow him perfectly? No. Do I always obey him completely? Of course not. None of us do. But we want to. And when we don't, we're convicted. And we want to make it right with God. Now, listen. Obedience doesn't earn you your salvation. It is a mark of your salvation. It's a fruit. And so when somebody says to me, I'm a Christian, I say, well, great. But why do you live with your boyfriend? Or why do you live with your girlfriend? Or why are you living in some kind of open sin? Well, nobody's perfect. Well, I, that's true. <laughs> that doesn't give you a right to flaunt your imperfections in the face of a holy God either. Well, this then brings us to the next injunction Jesus gives. He said, take my yoke upon you, verse 29. A yoke was made of wood. It was hand-hewn to fit the neck and shoulders of the particular animal that was, was going to be wearing it in order to prevent chafing. A yoke was actually part of a harness that went on the animal that was used to pull a cart or a plow or a mill beam, which was the way the animal's master kept it under his control and guided it in the work the master wanted to accomplish. Now, you didn't want a yoke that didn't fit well because the yoke that didn't fit well chafed the neck of the animal, rubbed it raw, and eventually infection would set in, and you couldn't put a yoke on that uh, creature at all. So you wanted to make sure the yoke fit well. For obvious reasons, the term was widely used back then in the ancient world as a metaphor for submission. In fact, a student was often spoken of as being under the yoke of his teacher. And an ancient Jewish writing contains the advice, and I quote, put your neck under the yoke and let your soul receive instruction, end quote. So in that culture, the idea of a yoke became a symbol of submission, placing yourself under the authority of another, to be controlled by them, whether a teacher or a rabbi or somebody that you respected and wanted to learn from. So, guys, salvation involves faith, but also submission. Because it's impossible for Jesus to be Lord over our lives if we refuse to obey him. Therefore, Jesus' call or his invitation includes the idea of submission symbolized by a yoke. And listen, a lack of submission is often a mark of unbelief. Turn to Luke 6 once. As we're really trying to understand what Jesus is saying here in these simple verses... Coming to him and receiving salvation implies submitting to his lordship. Those who claim to be disciples but don't want to submit to his lordship, well, they're actually manifesting a heart of unbelief, even though they might be very religious. In Luke 6, verse 46, Jesus said to a group of would-be disciples, he said, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and yet don't do the things which I say? Lord, there is a title for somebody who is your master. Somebody who has control over your life. If you call Jesus Lord, but don't let him have control over your life, he's not really your Lord. And then in Matthew 7, verse 21, we'll turn there. Jesus will say to these same people on the day of judgment, Matthew 7, verse 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. 
And again, obedience doesn't produce salvation. It is a fruit of salvation. We're not saying we're saved by our works. We're saying that works will follow genuine saving faith. Very important. And then the third injunction that Jesus gives in this greatest invitation ever given to mankind is also found in verse 29. He says, and learn from me. Here the emphasis changes from salvation to sanctification. From salvation to sanctification. And by the way, guys, sanctification is the goal of salvation. There are those folks who believe that salvation is the end. Salvation is a means to an end. Some people say, well, you know what? I'm saved. That's all I care about. All right? Well, don't you want to go farther with the Lord? Don't you want to, you know, come to church and study the Word and, and get involved in it? No, no, no. I'm, I'm good. Just as long as I'm, I'm saved, that's all I care about. Is this salvation was the, was the goal? Look. God had to save us to get us to the goal, which was to make us like Christ. That's what sanctification is all about. That each day we are transformed more and more into the image of Jesus Christ because that's how we bring God the most glory. By living our lives like Jesus lived. Not that there will ever be as perfect as He was this side of glory. But that's the, that's the goal. To manifest to this world the Father. Even as Jesus did. By the way we live and love and forgive and so on. Notice that Jesus didn't say here, take my yoke upon you and learn by me. He said, learn from me. In other words, learn what the Christian life is all about from my example. You know, Jesus said, I haven't come to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. That was his heart. I do always those things that please my father. Remember what Paul said in Philippians 2, how that Jesus Christ left his glory in heaven humbled himself, becoming one of us, a man, and learning obedience, even to the point of death, the death of the cross. Jesus Christ gave us the example to follow. And the example to follow was not to be out in front where people are cheering us or we're you know, stepping on people to get where we want to be. It's all about dying to self. It's all about living for others. It's all about denying ourselves, our rights, and so on, to live for God to die to self, that we might be used by God to bring others to Christ. To learn obedience by going to the cross. That's exactly what Jesus did. I can't tell you how important that is. We all know that is doctrine, but we don't always practice it as duty. So those are the injunctions. How about the descriptions? Well, first of all, we see those being invited. He said in verse 28, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. The Greek word for labor there uh, means to grow weary. To grow weary. It carries the idea of working to the point of utter exhaustion. Jesus calls to himself everyone who was exhausted from trying to find God and please him through their own strength and through their own religious works. Heavy laden? Well, I believe that the Lord is referring to the heavy weight of the law which was laid upon the people by the scribes and the Pharisees. You know, in Jesus' day, the rabbinical teachings had become so massive, demanding and all-encompassing, that they mandated regulations for virtually every area of life. From the time you woke up in the morning to all throughout your day, they came up with every conceivable situation you could find yourself in, and they had a law or a rule how you were to deal with that. From the time you woke up to the time you went to bed, it was incredible. In fact, we know that in Jesus' day, there was the Mishnah. What was the Mishnah? Well, the Jews claimed that on Mount Sinai, Moses not only got the written law from God, but he received the oral law. How do you prove that? 
the written law, we knew what that was, right? 613 commandments. The oral law, thousands of commandments. And you couldn't even learn them all, let alone begin to live them out in your life. That laid a very heavy burden on people because the rabbis, of course, taught the only way to get to heaven was to keep the law. Keep the law. I can't even learn all those laws, let alone begin to live them out in my life. That became a very heavy burden. You say, well, how did the rabbis do themselves? The scribes and Pharisees, did they live those laws? Read Matthew 23. Jesus said, you know, you guys lay heavy burdens on people that you yourself are not willing to move with one of your fingers. Well, they were great at dumping stuff on people. They didn't really plan to live that way themselves. Classic hypocrisy. But this could also relate to the heavy burdens that people carry around in their own lives due to their sins and, you know, bad habits and things that have them feeling weighed down with guilt and condemnation. Anybody in our society fit that profile? So a lot of people, because God has written His laws in our hearts, we have a conscience to tell us when we're violating those laws and that the warning sound is guilt. Many people are laboring under the heavy weight of their own sin. What do you do? Well, Jesus is saying, look, you come to me. But if you're going to come to me, you have to realize this. Come as you are, but stop making excuses for where you're living. Stop justifying it. Stop blaming other people. I'll receive you just like you are. You don't have to jump through hoops. You don't have to clean your life up. I'll take care of all of that. But you have better know, if you're going to come to me, don't give me excuses. Don't, don't justify why you're doing what you're doing. You recognize it's sin. You ask me for forgiveness. You submit to my authority in your life. And I'll receive you. If you come to me and you're offering me human effort, laws, rituals, ceremonies, or other religious duties that will save you, guess what? You're not going to get eternal life. So a lot of people want to come to Jesus and say, Lord, here's what I'm going to do for you. I'm going to go to church. I'm going to light candles, man. I'm going to pray the rosary. I'm going to... I'm going to do all these works. Huh? Good, Lord, right? And that's going to earn me my place with you. She said, if you come to me with weighted down with all those works, you're not going to get eternal life. I only give it to the broken, the humble, the proud, the arrogant, the self-sufficient. Don't even bother applying. I'll receive you as you are. But you've got to acknowledge that your sin is your fault. And I'll clean you up. But I don't want to hear excuses. Get in your knees and humbly confess your sins, and I'll receive you. Then we see a second description, the one giving the invitation. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. Verse 29. Of course, this will be in contrast to the scribes and Pharisees who are both harsh and proud. Jesus, by contrast, is gentle and lowly. Why were the Pharisees and scribes so harsh and proud? Well, because they were legalists. And legalism focuses on self, my works, what I'm going to do for God, and breeds not only pride, but contempt for others who don't measure up to my standards. I mean, legalism causes people, and those some folks who are very into legalism, uh, it's all about what they're doing for God, and they don't want to hear a message of grace. That's why the Pharisees and scribes hated Jesus, because he was teaching grace, come to me, just as you are, you don't need these works and laws, come to me by faith. The scribes and Pharisees hated him for that because their legalism had produced in them a sense of false righteousness based on their works. It fed into their pride and it caused them to look down on others who didn't measure up to them. Case in point, Luke 18, 9 to 14. Remember the two guys in the temple praying? One was a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. 
Pharisee stood right there in the front, you know, and, and uh, basically prayed to himself because God was listening. He didn't know that. God, I thank you I'm not like other men. What a way to search your prayers, right? Lord, you're so blessed to have me on your team. You know, I fast twice a week. I give alms to the poor, you know. I do this, I do that. You know, I'm, I'm a really righteous guy. Not like this loser over here, this tax collector. The tax collector, he stood in the back. He wouldn't even look toward heaven. He was so ashamed of his sins. He beat on his breast and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus said, I tell you the truth, that man went away justified, whereas the Pharisee did not go away justified. Why? Because he who exalts himself will be humbled. He who humbles himself will be exalted. That's why grace is so important. We are saved by grace. Grace is a gift, right? When God offers us salvation, it's a gift. And so what do we do? We don't focus on self. Who focuses on the person who receives the gift? It's the one who gives the gift you focus on, right? So grace means it's, grace is God-focused. And because I don't have to perform to earn heaven, God simply offers it to me as a gift of His grace by me receiving His Son, then God gets all the glory. I don't boast in my works because I haven't done anything to merit eternal life. What does that do in my concept or my way I relate to other people? Because God has forgiven such a wretch like me, look, I can be merciful and kind and gracious towards your shortcomings and failings. Because if God can save me, folks, He can save anybody. And that's the idea. That's why Jesus was so lowly and gentle. Not because he needed to... Of course, he was sinless. But that's the heart of God. To be gracious. To be lowly and gentle with people. And thirdly, Jesus describes them the yoke. He is commanding us to take upon ourselves if we choose to come to him. He said in verse 30, For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. When he says my yoke is easy, the word easy there in the Greek is krestos, and it could be translated well-fitting. In Israel, ox yokes were made again of wood. Because these things had to be well-fitting, as we already talked about. You would bring your ox to the carpenter shop. And he would, you know, begin to take some measurements, and he'd, then you'd go back to your house there, and he'd rough out a uh, kind of a crude uh, uh, yoke. You know, you'd bring your ox back, and he'd fit it on there and realize he had to make some other adjustments, and he'd sand, and he'd shape, and, and then you brought the ox back again. And, and this went on several times, until the, the ox yoke was perfectly fitted to the animal. Each individual. You didn't buy ox yokes off the shelf at Yokes R Us, you know. <laughs> you know. They were custom made. The yoke was tailor made to fit the ox. I like this. One author said this and I quote, There is a legend that Jesus made the best ox yokes in Galilee. Well, does that surprise anybody? I mean, you know, Jesus was a carpenter. You better believe everything he made was the best. But there's this tradition, okay? And that from all over the country, men came to him to buy the best yokes that skill could make. In those days, as now, shops had their signs above the door, and it has been suggested that the sign above the door of the carpenter shop in Nazareth, which Jesus ran, may well have been, here's the sign out over the door of Jesus' uh, carpenter shop, my yokes fit well. I don't know if that's a true story. It's tradition. We don't know. But if that was true, then Jesus is using it as a picture right here, isn't he? Saying, take my yoke. My yoke is easy. My yoke is well-fitting. What does that mean to us when Jesus would say to us, take my yoke upon you because it is well-fitting? I believe 
what he is saying is that submitting our lives to him will allow him to lead us in the right paths. The road that God has prepared for us before the foundation of the world. You know, Paul said in Ephesians 2 verse 10, For we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so that we can do the good things, listen, He planned for us long ago. And I believe that God has a perfect plan for every person's life. I believe that God has tailor-made every one of us that His plan would fit perfectly in our lives according to the gifts and the abilities He has given us. He has designed us a certain way. And if we will submit our life to Jesus, take His easy or well-fitting yoke upon us, God will guide us in the exact paths He has ordained. His plan fits well with our life. Now, does that mean we have to walk in His way? We have to walk His path? Can I walk my own path? Can I choose the way I'm going to go? Of course. That's what the proverb writer said, there is a way that seems right to a man. That's the, that's the way we're talking about. That's your way. There is a way that seems right to a man or woman, but in the end there is the way of what? Death. Sure, we can do our own thing. I'll tell you what though, when you walk in God's perfect plan, now, when I say He'll lead you in the right path, I, I'm not saying He's going to lead you in the easiest paths. Because we know Christians go through some pretty difficult paths. I'll tell you what, though. I would rather be going through the hardest place in my entire life knowing that Jesus' yoke was on me and I was doing His will than to find myself in some bad place knowing I was going my own way. So that's up to you to decide what you want to do. If I know His yoke is on me and I'm following His will, Lord, You can lead me through dark valleys, the shadow of death, as long as I know you are with me, Lord, I will, I will have the strength from you to do what you've called me to do. Go my own way, I'm on my own. And I don't want to be on my own, that, that's for sure. All right, finally and quickly, each invitation is a corresponding promise. Verse 28, come to me all you who labor and are heavy laden, here's the promise, and I will give you rest. When Jesus said, I will give you rest, literally in the Greek, it's, I will rest you. I will rest you. What does that mean? Well, in the New Testament, Jesus Christ is called our Sabbath rest. Remember how God created six days, seventh day, he rested. And the writer of the Hebrews picks up on that and says, Jesus Christ is our Sabbath rest. What does that mean? It means that Jesus Christ did all the work of salvation. And from the cross, he said, it is what? Finished. So I need to realize that and cease doing works to earn my salvation and just rest in His completed work, which alone could purchase my salvation. Now, to tell you the truth, as Calvary people, this is a message we've grown up with. But if you were raised like in the Roman Catholic Church or in a very legalistic Protestant church or as a Muslim or some other faith, you realize the heavy burden that is placed upon people to earn salvation, whatever they define that to be, through works. I'll tell you what, it is so exhausting trying to earn something God is offering for free. Legalism will kill you. I'll tell you what, I told first service about a woman who came to our church several years ago. And um, she came from one of those very ultra-legalistic churches. A church where you get saved pretty much every week. 
Not really, but that's what they teach. As soon as you walk out the door, if you blow it, oh, you're, you lose your salvation. You've got to come back here. So every week this poor woman was getting saved again, quote-unquote, because she couldn't live up to the laws that this church had laid on her. She got so exhausted and so tired of trying to live perfectly when she was imperfect that she finally left that church and came to our church. And over the course of, I don't know, a month or two, a bunch of our ladies, some of you right here today, and myself also, we spent hours with this woman off and on trying to show her from Scripture while we are saved by grace and not according to our works. That Jesus Christ nailed all of our sins to his cross and took them out of the way when he died. And that we relate to God through grace now. And we tried our best. We prayed with her. We showed her Scripture. And you know what? A few times we saw the glimmer of light in her eyes that maybe she was getting it, but she had been brainwashed for too long. After about two months, she left our church and went back to this ultra-legalistic church. And not long after that, I heard she had committed suicide. Her sister was so furious with that church that she came to me and said, Will you do her eulogy? And I did. You know, when Paul says the law kills, but the Spirit gives life, that was literally true in her case. You cannot live under the law. The devil wants to put you there because he can condemn you and make you feel guilty and hopefully push you to a point of utter failure and exhaustion where you commit suicide. But Jesus Christ did all the work and has taken all of our sins out of the way if we put our faith in him. Of course, as we said, when he talks about being heavy laden, he also could be talking about being laden or burdened down with sin. The psalmist said in Psalm 38, verse 4, For my iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden. They are too heavy for me. You know, there's a lot of people who think that God doesn't want me. He might want you, but he doesn't want me because you don't know what I've done in my life. You don't know how bad I've been. Well, Paul said in Romans, where sin abounds, grace superabounds. In other words, there is no sin that God's grace can't forgive you for if you come to Jesus. And I'll tell you what, once you give your heart to Christ, isn't it wonderful how the weight of that guilt and condemnation is finally gone? As Jesus went to the cross, died in our place, paid for our debt in full, and all the guilt and condemnation is gone. What a blessing to have that weight lifted off of us. We can finally have rest from trying to earn something God is giving us for free. But also, Jesus said that in verse 29, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle, lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. The first one deals with external rest from not having to continue on with all these this burden of outward works, religious duties and ceremonies and rituals that will then earn me my salvation. We know that that's wrong. And so when you come to Jesus, He gives you rest from all the externals. But there's another rest or a peace that comes inside of you when Jesus comes to live in your heart. I'd say there's a beautiful freedom that comes when you abide in Christ. Saved, yeah, that's the starting point. But abiding in Christ every day, well, that's what God wants because that's where you grow in Christ-likeness as you learn from Him. There's a wonderful freedom that, that comes from ambition when a person relinquishes control of their life to Jesus. 
you know, we all know this. Before we got saved, we all had our ambitions, our drives, our passions, sometimes our obsessions to be rich and famous and what this or successful. And we plowed ahead, and that was our goal. And every morning it drove us, drove us to drink oftentimes or take drugs to deal with the stress. Uh, it drove us to the doctor to deal with the hole in our stomach. But, you know, th this is what happened before we got saved. And once you receive Christ, He comes inside and He begins to give you rest from all that turmoil, all that striving. Suddenly, I don't want the world anymore. I just want Jesus. I can rest in Him. I don't have to be successful or wealthy. Now, if God calls you to be a Christian business person, then God bless you. I'm not saying that that's a sin or a wrong. I'm just saying for me, that's what he, he didn't call me to do. I just wanted to be wealthy and successful. You know, of course, you always say, well, it's not for me. I don't really want it for me, my family. I just want them to be taken care of, baloney. You know, I wanted the nice cars. I wanted the, you know, the nice vacations. And those things are not wrong. If God has blessed you financially. I'm not trying to lay a guilt trip on you. I'm just saying that, you know what? I know a lot of Christian business people who are successful, but they don't draw their joy from their business. It's Jesus. They use their money to support the work of God. You can be wealthy and have money and not have money hold on to you. I mean, money is not the root of all evil. It's the love of money. And Jesus Christ liberates us from all of that. But listen, you will never find rest in the external or rest in the internal, which are just the fruits of salvation until you first come to Jesus and receive His invitation. Look, I believe we have here the greatest invitation coupled to the greatest gift mankind has ever been offered by God. But the greatest invitation and the greatest gift, eternal life, will be meaningless if you don't reach out by faith and take it. If you don't come to Jesus, then I'll do you no good. And the beauty is anyone can come because anyone can believe. God took it out of our hands. Jesus did the work. Now it says, if you want salvation and all the peace and joy and rest that comes with it, you come to me by faith. Because it's only found in me. So maybe you came here this morning and you're striving, you're anxious, you're worried. You know what? It's such a blessing to me that once I gave my heart to Christ and took His yoke on me, which means He's now controlling my life, I don't have to worry about where the mortgage is coming from. I don't have to worry about where the money's coming from to buy this or that this week. You know, I just get, Lord, it's your problem. When I gave you my life, I made you my master. So I'm not going to worry about these things, Lord, because they're your problem. You promised to take care of me. I'm just going to abide in you. I'm just going to praise you, even for what I don't see yet. I'm going to thank you for what I, you have not given as of yet, but I know you will give because you're going to take care of us. That's the only way you're going to have peace and rest in this crazy world we're living in, especially the economic craziness, right? You've got to find your rest in Him. Come to Jesus, not just for salvation. Come to Jesus every single day to abide. And He will give you the rest that you're looking for and the joy. But you've got to come to Him and no one else but Him. Amen? Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank You so much, Lord, for Your goodness and grace. Lord, You are so awesome, so generous, so gracious. And Father, we thank You that You offered us a gift of eternal life. Of course, it wasn't free. Jesus paid the ultimate price. But Father, we thank You that You've extended, because of what Jesus did, Your arms to sinners like us. And said, now You come. I will receive You. You come to Me. You, you lay those sins down. You lay those burdens down. 
just come to me as you are. I will receive you. I will make you a son, a daughter. You'll be part of my family. I'll take care of you. I'll give your life purpose and meaning. You've got to come to me. And then keep coming to me every day to abide in me, to draw strength from me and peace. We thank you, Father, that you are such a loving God. We pray for those here this morning, Lord, who will be listening to this on radio or on CD who don't know you. Lord, you would work in their hearts that they would receive your gracious invitation and the gift of eternal life. Father, we thank you. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.